This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Wongal people and the Yagara Turrbal peoples. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Strap in. Buckle up. It's story time, folks. This is Australiana Rama. Morning. This episode has some swear words. And we do mention water polo, <laughs> which is very violent. <laughs> <laughs> Jess. Maddie. Do you remember the year 2000? <laughs> I am. Um, we, we, I mean, we can do this again if you like. For all our listeners, everything <laughs> crashed and we had to start again. You're looking better though. You're not a big pixel. Uh, well, I feel like a big pixel. <laughs> um, I do. I do have some vague memories of the year two thousand, Maddie. Excellent. Um, I remember watching the Olympics, and you lived in Central Queensland. I did. I, I was eight in the year two thousand, and I lived just off the Bruce Highway in Central Queensland, God's country. Absolutely. I lived in Palm Woods on the Sunshine Coast, but I was actually in Sydney for the Olympics. As a competitor. We'll get to. Yeah. Yeah, I actually was the one of the mascots. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me and Susie O'Neill had a great time. Lovely. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> the year is 1993. <laughs> and on the 24th of September, Sydney wins the bid to host the next, uh, well, not the next, but one of the future Olympic Games in the year 2000. Wowee. Uh, They narrowly defeated Beijing by only two votes. Mm. It was very, very close. There was like multiple rounds of voting because they couldn't quite get a clear winner and other cities were knocked out. And anyway, Mm. it's all very dramatic. People wanted it for the millennium. Yep. Which, like, fair enough, mm. you know. The International Olympic Committee were supposedly attracted to the city's long history of enthusiasm for sports. <laughs> okay. Mm. Um, and also for Australia's plans to involve some of the smaller countries of Oceania and in the Pacific um, that haven't been as heavily involved mm. before. Which makes sense because yeah. geographically we are positioned to do that. Mm. The primary site was to be built in Sydney's western suburbs in what was supposedly like a recovered toxic wasteland. Yeah, I've heard it referred to as a derelict industrial site. Yes. Mm. And look, I probably could have done more research on that, but it sounded like it was potentially somewhere that was not well looked after previously. Yeah. Like that's one of the things that like you can talk about the economic cost, but like they actually did do it in, on like a really dodgy bit of land and now there are like parks and anyway. pathways and things. And Great. Mm. Good one. Wow. Uh, it's one of the – it was going to be one of the very rare times that the Summer Olympics was going to be held in uh, – like not in June, July, in the normal kind of – summer northern hemisphere period it was only (laughs) the second time that the summer olympics was ever held in the southern hemisphere the other one being melbourne in 1956 yeah which i found shocking like that's Mm. it's only ever been in the northern hemisphere until that point which is wild yeah the previous games before the 2000 olympics were the 1996 atlanta olympics and they were widely criticised. Mm. <laughs> Apparently it was just a poorly organised and super commercial event where they also cut corners. Like it was very, you know, capitalist America being like America um, to the point where there's anecdotes about volunteer drivers being recruited from out of town <laughs> and then like not knowing where to go anywhere <laughs> and athletes like having to jump out and get taxis and hijack buses to like get to the events. Oh my god! On time. Yeah, fun. Which sounds utterly cooked. <laughs> 
Also, uh, tragically, there actually was also a domestic terrorist event mm. um, at that Olympics where someone set off a pipe bomb at the Centennial Olympic Park and killing two people and injuring 111 people. Wow. So it wasn't, yeah, so historically it's not viewed as one of the more uh, happier Good. games. Yeah. So the Sydney Olympics, however, would be the first games in the new millennium and marked the dawn of a new era, so a modern games that would be televised to more people than ever ever before Mm. it was a huge (laughs) responsibility and the pressure was certainly on (laughs) Mm. if you ever have a spare you know 20 minutes in your life and you feel like going down a wormhole and looking at footage of the melbourne olympic games you'll see how far Australia had to go as far as like stepping it up. Not that it was bad. It was just technologically it was a the completely 50s, different yeah. era. Yeah. Mm. And so Australia had not hosted anything like this before. The closest thing was probably Expo 88. Mm. Uh, and a lot of the same people were involved in many ways, but still like. I like seven holy years. Holy dooly. Seven years prep is actually not enough. No, I'm currently on a tour that has been in preparation for three years and we're still moving flights and changing things Mm. constantly, (laughs) you know, like and that's just a tour for a little theatre show. Like I cannot even fathom. No. Wild. Anyway, so (laughs) the motto or mottos were the games of the new millennium and also share the spirit Dare to dream. Ooh. Which is like so 2000s. Mm. Yeah. Uh, we will come back to the phrase dare to dream oh. when we address the opening ceremony. Oh, absolutely. I've got some thoughts. In detail. Mm. Yeah. I have some feelings. So oh, yeah. <laughs> it's going to be good. We'll share the logo. Yeah. <laughs> so many. The logo uh, was named the Millennium Man and it sported a runner slash torchbearer in motion formed by two small yellow boomerangs for arms and a large red boomerang for legs. And the Olympic torch was represented with a smoke trail above that also represented the opera house. It was a green squiggle, I think. It was a squiggle of You'll find it was blue. Blue, there you go. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's not unlike enough. like the kind of the style of the logo for my high school. Yes, mm. because Same. my high school opened in '98, so it was like yeah. you know. Yeah, mm. we had a star man, and it like it made the shape of an X, and then so we had all of these programs that was like excellence ah. and extreme, and it, and it was cooked. But yes, a sign of the times. Mm. <laughs> Uh, So leading up to the event, we're getting closer and closer to the event and leading up a, um, so a senior Aboriginal advisor to the Sydney Olympics, who was Charles Perkins, was also the only Indigenous member of the committee responsible for winning the 2000 Games, Hmm. maybe therein lies a problem, called for an international boycott due to the worsening uh, racism towards Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people Hmm. in Australia. However, it's a, it's a bit of a it's a bit of an interesting time, and obviously I can't speak to this personally. But there's also lots of anecdotes about how there were lots of efforts that were positive. Um, there, so promises were made to include um, Indigenous arts and culture within not just the opening ceremony, but the event as a whole. There was a festival leading up to the games itself called the Cultural Olympiads Festival of the Dreaming, which was a literary and art festival aimed at providing people with an opportunity to experience the diversity of contemporary Indigenous creative practices. So really bringing contemporary art and literature um, from First Nations people and also invited other First Nations people from around the world to engage Mm. in that festival as well. Um, So... Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting time. There are definitely like public records of people speaking positively and negatively mm. around Indigenous representation in this yeah. event. When we get to my bit about the ceremony, I have I have some, some things about it. Yes. Mm. Yes. Yeah, the ceremony is a big one yeah. for sure. So 
Here comes the torch. She <laughs> is here. We are counting down and we're ready to run. So <laughs> the Olympic flame began its journey uh, in Australia starting in Uluru and obviously it had to end up in Sydney at some point and the journey started on the 8th of June mm. 2000. Have you watched long the footage journey. of it arriving in Uluru? I've seen bits of it. I haven't seen it uh, like arriving in Uluru. Like I've seen well, the ceremony there. Yeah, because like it what comes. Well, because it has to. Because it's you know it's come from Greece. It always comes from Greece, which I you know didn't realize the relay always begins in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Athens. Does it come from the sky? Well, obviously they've had to fly at some point, but like it came to Uluru, like in a bus, and there's a guy holding this like little like it's a little lamp, like a old timey oh, oil yeah, lamp. Oh yeah, yeah, yes. And then it seemed to be quite a, a windy day. Um, yes, I've seen this bit. And like all the <laughs> the elders are there patiently waiting and so is no, yes, Nova Paris. the Uluru family. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so eventually they do, they get it lit and it's it's passed along. Yes. Um, but the wind does um, have some strong feelings about obstructing <laughs> the event. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then Nova Paris is the first person to actually run and I think of it she goes, she hands it to Ernie Dingo, I believe. Yeah, so she she is the first person. So it is um, – so the Uluru family, so the traditional custodians of the mm. land there are there and they accept the torch from the governor, Australia's Governor-General from the time, who was Sir William Dean, and they pass it around the family and then to Nova Paris. And she actually ran without shoes on as well, um, which she said was a sign for the respect of the traditional owners of that land. Mm. And Kanamanara Uluru said, we are all very happy the fire stick has come to my father's place and we welcome you to our country as part of the ceremony. But, yeah, uh, Nova Paris was actually the first Aboriginal person to win an Olympic gold medal in Australia as well. She played in the Hockey Ruse in Atlanta in 1996 who won mm. gold. Yeah, so it's it's pretty cool that she's the first person to get it and is yeah, very deserving. It had to travel 27,000 kilometres over 100 days to reach the stadium for the opening ceremony. It's a long way. Yeah. More than 11,000 people carried the torch and <laughs> the route was within a one-hour visiting distance of 80% of the population. Mm. So, like, Wherever it went, you could be within an hour of visiting it if you were within that eighty percent. Yeah, I mean, I don't. Did you see it? Did I it don't believe you? that it came through Benarabi or Tenham Um <laughs> It did come to Palmwoods, and I have touched it. Ah, oh, that's fun. I mean, unless I've erased I it completely from my brain. Yeah, it, I just, I'd, I'd be surprised because you really yeah. have to go because Palmwoods is kind of on the way to things. Yeah, it is in a rainforest, but you can pop in, you know? Yeah. I yeah. just don't know if they – depends if they were just, you know, running all the way down the Bruce, then maybe they could have. You might have been within the one-hour mm. radius, but uh, – I don't know. Maybe maybe you had music that day at school. Yeah, or probably. <laughs> ah, okay. Mm. So here we are, the big, the, the big event – so the Sydney Olympics, the Sydney 2000 Olympics, ran from the 15th of September to the 1st of October in the year 2000, obviously because the actual summertime would have killed too many people. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> too hot. Including us spectators. And also it probably would have rained anyway. Oh, yeah. Been a they, they made a, a, a solid choice, I think. Yeah, the correct decision. Uh, there were 10,651 athletes, 199 countries, and 300 events. It's a lot. 10,500 people. That's a lot of accommodation, it, which explains yeah. Sydney Olympic Park now. If you've ever been, it is mostly hotels. Mm, and like Newington is the suburb that they also made, which was the Olympic Village. Mm. Where's that? Close by, I think. So it's around Down there. the road. Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, the only 
missing IOC member was Afghanistan because they were banned due to um, extremism around women in sport and prohibiting women from playing sport. So there was some tension there. And the ceremony actually featured for the first time uh, a unified entrance from the athletes of North and South Korea. Mm. And they had their special flag. They did, which was cute. And the um, there was like I think four of them, athletes from East Timor, um, but yes. they're un- competing individually under the Olympic flag because it was not quite yet a country. It was not a country officially. Mm. Yes, they, but seen internationally. Yeah, yeah, and if you see the footage of their entry, they're so happy. Like They're having the best yeah, time, East Timor. The Sydney Games were the 24th modern Olympic Games. That's fun. Mm-hmm. It's a fun fact. <laughs> there were 46,967 volunteers. It's a lot of volunteers. Yeah. That's four times as more than athletes. Mm. That's a four to one ratio. That's hectic. Mm. But yes, they were decked out in excellent uniforms, which we may put up on socials actually. Oh, yeah, they're so They great. had their white brim hats and like a yellow aqua blue shirt and they there's like this ongoing legacy which you know a little bit about Jess of the Mm. volunteers Mm. that helped pull this event off and a lot of the positive reception um of the games and a lot of the positive commentary even internationally was that just this like army of volunteers were there at any given point in time. Yeah. It's like Disney World where if a kid trips over, there's three staff members there immediately that you didn't even know were there. Mm. Yeah, but soon it's someone in a really cool raincoat appears. They had cool yes. raincoats, like spray jacket things. Oh, amazing. Mm. Amazing. Uh, several events were at the Games for the first times, including men's and women's taekwondo, trampoline, triathlon, and synchronized diving. And there were also a few events that women were allowed to compete in for the first time, including weightlifting, pentathlon, pole vault, and I think water polo as well. Wow. Pole vault. Yeah. It's a surprise that women weren't doing it. Look, yes and no, you Mm. know. It just seems like an (laughs) odd one. Yeah, not surprised, just disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) Because things like like water polo is a pretty niche sport, you know, so it's like, oh, maybe they just really didn't rustle up enough teams until that point. Yeah. Yeah, and then you – my theory is that water polo is the netball of the water. Oh, yeah. Like it's violent. Oh, they're trying to drown each other. Yep. Anyway. It's wild. <laughs> um, I'm not going to talk too much about the opening ceremony in this episode because, spoiler alert, our next episode is going to be an amazing in-depth review of the opening yeah, ceremony. Yeah, this is a two-parter. So. <laughs> yeah. Feel free to watch along. <laughs> Honestly, it's probably good. Yeah. Yeah, it's actually like it, it, a lot of it holds, a lot of it doesn't. Anyway, oh, it's, I'm not going to get too much into camp is it. Campus row of tents, as mum would say. Um, it's great. Yes. If you need to turn your brain off for a bit, <laughs> watch the yeah. opening ceremony. What I will mention briefly is that it was a four-hour long spectacle and saw 12,687 people perform, mm. yep. which, again, is just so many. Yeah. <laughs> um, and those performances ranged from tap dancing to various cultural engagements to Nikki Webster to a giant fire-breathing mechanical horse. Yeah, we'll, we'll, I'll go into all but of those and We'll more. go into all yeah. of that. And one thing that I am going to note now is that the lighting of the cauldron was this really big secret that had been kept for months and months and months leading up to this event. And it was this really big thing and all of this press was building up about, like, who is it going to be? Who is going to do it? And there were lots and lots of theories, but the biggest theory was Kathy Freeman, mm. and then it was her. Yeah. Which is great. It was great. Yeah. So day one of the Olympics, the triathlon, as mentioned earlier, makes its Olympic debut with their women's race, and it's set in the surroundings of the Sydney Opera House. So, like, Oh, yeah, they I, made them swim in the harbour. Hilarious. They swam in the harbour. So gross. That's disgusting. Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh. But then they also cycled and ran around Sydney Harbour and wild. Anyway, so Bridget McMahon becomes the first person to win gold 
in an Olympic triathlon ever. Good work. She was from Switzerland and she swam in the Sydney Harbour. <laughs> she also beat a few local favourites that we were hoping to win, mm. such as uh, Michelle Jones, who won silver, and apparently McMahon, like, just, just won. Then we get to the swimming events. Now, these are arguably, you know, some of the biggest events for Australia in any Olympics mm. because we, we, yeah, we just, we just breed good swimmers and we also put a lot of money into the, these programs. But yeah, and yeah, also the year like, 2000s was particularly mm, mint. Well, it's a real, like, there's plenty of countries where, like, not everyone can swim. Like, most people in Australia yeah. can swim. Like, it's a yes. thing. Yeah. Yes. Which is also mentioned in the opening ceremony as well, mm. which we'll talk about in the next episode. Ian Thorpe, Thorpedo, was 17 a years young. baby. Couldn't even drink. An enormous, enormous baby. So Legally tall. a child. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Um, he also broke his ankle 12 months before the games and had been in rehab oh my for God. a while. So, yeah. But classic, like, oh, I broke my ankle at 16 and then I went to the Olympics at 17. Mm. Lol. <laughs> Thorpe. So this is also day one of the games. He has a huge race, so the 100-meter men's freestyle, and he not only wins but he breaks the world record mm. in that race. If you have five minutes, watch it. It's genuinely an ex- thrilling, exciting time to watch. Um, but also he had to then immediately, like, go to the podium and get his medal presented, run, I don't know what they call it, but run backstage, change into a different wetsuit, a dry one, Mm. to then go run straight into the four by 100 metre relay. relay. That's crazy. Yes. Yes, in the Australian men's team. Um, (laughs) But he tells this story about how he had a wardrobe malfunction and his the wetsuit he was getting changed into, the zipper broke. Mm. And then the next one broke and he literally only had, they had timed it and practiced it. It was a quick change. Like mm. He was doing a quick change. Yeah. And then he had to get back into his wet wetsuit. And if you've ever tried to get back into wet togs. Oh. I know. Ian, poor thing. Yeah. And so if you ever watch the 4x100 relay, you will see that when they announce Australia, there's three blokes in their Australian uniforms like going, woo, and Ian literally like runs in in a damp wetsuit (laughs) and gets there just in time. None of us ever knowing until afterwards that he was like having a literal naked crisis. (laughs) That is so odd that it would be scheduled that way. Yeah. That he doesn't get a break. So that's good. Um, so this was a this was a big moment because the Americans had won this event for literally like twenty or thirty years in a row, like over and over and over and over. The US owned this specific mm. event, and there'd been heaps of media leading up to the event about the Australians potentially being able to beat them, and it became this international <laughs> feud, like in good jest, mm. but yeah. Um, and they did beat them and not only did they beat them but they broke the world record and not only did they beat the world record they break it each split so each individual athlete mm. in the relay breaks a record including and then they Dampian. win overall it's amazing including champion <laughs> uh, yeah and then they air guitar at the americans because there had been an interview with the american swim captain a couple months before, a couple weeks before, who was sponsored by Gibson Guitars. And this journalist is like, oh, are you going to beat the Australians? And the American captain was like, I'm going to smash them like my Gibson guitar. <laughs> so then all the Australian dickheads air guitar, like, <laughs> ah, which is pretty funny. That's funny. And honestly, like, could you imagine ever being like, I'm going to smash them like my insert sponsorship mm. brand name here? Like, <laughs> yeah. And I do like that I feel like, you know, picking on Americans is a bit of an Olympic sport too in Australia. Oh, yeah, because yeah. they're the biggest team. Mm. They're always the biggest team. So we got it. Yeah, everyone Everyone rally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if Gibson uh, sponsored him after that. Yeah, I don't know. 
<laughs> so women's polo then happens and yes sydney i believe was the first and yes it is the netball of the sea mm-hmm. and australia is also up against the us in this event and the us are winning two points to one and it literally gets down to the last five seconds and australia scores in the last second in the buzzer fun so they draw and share the win wow yeah and the Americans visibly look dirty, very, very upset. <laughs> like they were just like, are you serious? It's it's pretty amazing footage. Like she throws it and it hits the net and it's like, and then the Americans are like, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. Yes. Um, the volleyball was a big event for Australia as well. Natalie Cook, who's on the volleyball team, Looks like she's in 2000 now. Like she has short, spiky hair mm. with highlights. It's amazing. It's very specific, the beach volleyball look. Yes, yes. The ladies' team stayed in a Catholic nunnery for part of the Olympics. Did they? I'm assuming accommodation was low. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, we'll put the local Sydney girls mm. in the nunnery because <laughs> we can get away with that without, you know, international mm. press. <laughs> But apparently they really they were it was really lovely because the nuns and the people at the nunnery would line up at the front and cheer them with signs every day and wave to them oh, out. Oh, that's so cute. Yeah. And then the volleyball girls also like really, really fine, um, fine line when they win the 99th medal for Australia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can't mention the Sydney Olympics without mentioning Eric the Eel. True. Have you heard that name before? Yep, I have. Yep, you're aware of Eric. <laughs> yep. Before the Sydney Olympics, Eric Musambani had never swam in an Olympic-sized swimming pool. So he trained in a 12-meter swimming pool, um, and was for it was he was from the Central African country of Equatorial Guinea. Yeah, Equatorial Guinea. I remember. Yes. Yeah, and it was it was a bit of a wild card entry, I believe. Anyway, so he famously is known for uh, swimming this race and just being like in, just so incredibly behind everyone else but still going and mm. persevering and he gets to the end. Like he doesn't bail, he keeps going and the crowd really, really cheer yeah. him on. Yeah. Some of the commentary around this is really interesting. Like some of it's really, really nice and it's like this is a nice thing where like, you know, other countries should get a go at doing these things mm. and people will only get better by participating. And then I feel like some of the commentary is a little bit infantilizing as well, where it's like, oh, Eric, mm. oh, and I'm like, come on. He's still like a man that traveled across halfway across the world to compete in the Olympics. Like, this isn't an adult man. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Mm. But he, he, like all of his public press is, he's also very, you know, charming mm. and, um, speaks fondly of the whole event as well. Jumping Jai is another highlight. Do you remember Jumping Jai? No. At all? So Jai Torima, he's from Southport, Queensland, mm-hmm. and he was a long jumper and he was known for smoking a pack a day. Wow. <laughs> and obsessively ate pizza for most of his main meals. My goodness. No, I've not heard of this. Yeah, and he had like long hair down to his shoulder and a necklace, and he just he just looks like what color was his hair? Uh, dark brown, black. Mm, no, yeah, and he just looks like some guy that's come from Southport in the year two thousand and been like, I'm gonna do long jump. Mm. Like it's, but he was amazing, and he won silver. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good that's work, Jai. Yep, uh, famously in basketball, Team USA's Vince Carter leaps over another yeah player. like a se- seven foot a, a seven foot two man he jumps over yeah 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 he jumps over him and slam dunks mm. wild it's crazy uh-huh rulon gardner causes this massive drama um he was a wrestler and he won gold he beat his opponent um, which was this guy nicknamed the Russian Bear who had won 
three times. So he won the three previous Olympics and had not lost an international bout in Mm. 13 years. So he literally was undefeated for 13 years and this American guy beat him. Wow. And even he didn't think he would. He's like famously talks about how, you know, he walks out to the finals and he's like, well, at least I'm guaranteed a silver. Like, that's nice. Let's get beaten up now. And then he won. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, there was drama at the gymnastics in the women's vault. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Because the vault was set too low, but they didn't clock it in time. So all of these girls, and I'm saying girls because most of them are like teenage girls, mm. they're running at this vault and they are falling off and getting injured and it's just heinous, like gymnast after gymnast after gymnast. And everyone's kind of like, oh, it must just be a bad day. Well, and, and like, they got through like you know, three rounds because you get like four goals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's right towards the end. Mm. And they're like, they do that classic thing where it's like, oh, classic, you know, like one or two girls stuffed up and now the rest of the girls are frazzled mm. and they're just frazzled and they're stuffing up. And it was actually the 16-year-old Australian gymnast that clocked it and went to the judges and there's footage of her going up to the judges and going, the vault is too low. There's been a mistake. It is set too low. And they go out kind of reluctantly and Mm. measure it and they're like, oh, my God, she was right. That's so – that shouldn't happen. Yeah, and they're all allowed another crack. Like Mm. they reset. The ones who are – Half of them are injured by then. Mm. And they're all shaken and sad and freaked out. And so none of them do their best work. And then the girl who does actually win is then stripped of her win later because she tests positive for pseudoephedrine. Mm. So that whole event is just like. Yeah, and I think that she like appealed that, but it's like there's something with the Olympics, like even if you like you do it accidentally or you don't know because she was like yeah, Romanian and she was given it by like a doctor and like didn't realize that it was the yeah. cold and flu ones that she couldn't have and yeah yeah oh which is so easy to do do you remember when we were in France and I had a really bad cold in the last two days mm. and went to a pharmacy and this lovely French pharmacist beautiful man gave me sachets of powder and I was like Jess I don't know what I'm putting <laughs> in my body but if if something happens like mm. Yeah, so easy to do. Yeah, well, there's so many things that, like, if you haven't got it cleared that, I mean, there's many reasons why I couldn't be an Olympian, um, but I'd have to either get it approved that I can take my Ritalin or Mm. (laughs) you just can't take it because it's on their banned list. Like, Yeah. And if you've got a cold, enjoy. Too bad. Mm. Also in the pool, Susie O'Neill, who was the current number one female swimmer in the world, ranked um she wins her 200 meter freestyle race but she's known for butterfly uh so she had set the world record for the 200 meter butterfly only a couple months earlier butterfly is so hard it's the worst one it's not real it feels like it's drowning it's drowning moth you know yeah i can do the movement but i'm mostly stationary now my legs just sink i would just die Also a reason why (laughs) we cannot enter the Olympic Games. Although Um, I do think it would be so good if like, you know, each Olympics, like each event, like a a random like local comedian has to do it, like before everyone else has to have a crack. Yeah, that's good. I think it would be good, you know, like I'll. Or a a politician. Mm. But see, we we don't encourage them. Go drown in the pool. Don't encourage them too much. (laughs) No, Um, no. Yeah. No, we don't need to give them more screen time. Mm. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so she goes to do her 200-meter butterfly, which she famously set the world record for, and not only does she, like, not meet her own world record, but she gets second. Mm. So she just wasn't wasn't the right day, wasn't the right headspace, you know. Yeah. So it was a bit of a disappointment for her, but she still got one gold and three silvers. Mm. And she was like, yeah, I really beat myself up after those games, but now looking back I'm like, if any of my kids got one gold and three silvers, I'd be like, that's amazing. <laughs> it's like, girl, please. I also just have a note here in bold and italics that athletes are nerds. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I know that 
you know, people talk about sport, people being cool, and then you've got like your arts nerds and your academic nerds. But no, I have had a theory for years that athletes are nerds. Like no one can become an Olympian without being actually obsessed with statistics and numbers and focus and drive and not having a social life. Mm. Like if you don't eat McDonald's because you have to be in shape, you're a nerd. Like I'm sorry. If you don't. <laughs> Like, <laughs> you know, if you go to bed super early and then wake up at 3 a.m. because you're obsessed with your sport, you're a nerd. And that's okay. Mm. I think we should celebrate it. Yeah. I like the athletic nerds that are in my life. But they're, they're nerds, people. though. But they're nerds. They know who they are. Yep. Some of them are probably listening. I'm not going to name names. <laughs> uh, importantly, culturally importantly, we have to mention The Dream. Mm. Do you remember the show The Dream by Roy and HG? Yeah, I have vague recollections of it. Although I was, it was, I too young to have watched it. Really, too young. Yeah, mm. and yet it's still burned in my brain, living rent free. Mm. So <laughs> basically, The Dream was this late night panel show, kind of where Roy and HG did their own commentary on various events and just made stuff up. And they also interviewed athletes and just summarized the day's events it was really really popular it was it was a huge deal yeah to the point where people even in other countries were starting to hear about this thing and were like oh if this were broadcast here we would be watching it Mm. um (laughs) they had their own mascot which was fatso the fat-assed wombat Mm. affectionately known as fatso and they this wombat got so popular that he started to infiltrate events at the games. Mm. So the swimmers would be on the podium holding Fatso. And like yeah, he was more popular medal. than the actual ma- mascots. Yeah. Steve Millie and Ollie yeah. named for Yes, and Sydney there's also Olympics a fourth in the millennium. merch mascot, mm. which was the, bun- the punching kangaroo, the oh, boxing kangaroo. I was going to say the Paralympic one, which was Lizzie voiced by um, oh, yes. Livia Newton-John, which actually was – a big no, thing. No, she in, can't be replaced. In bringing, she's precious. You know, more. It was really successful in marketing the Paralympics. Yes, yes, but yeah, no. It was. It was like because there, yeah, there were the three animals, and then there was this fourth kind of merchandise, boxing kangaroo thing. Mm. Yeah, strange. Which I only vaguely remember, but I'm like, oh yeah, that thing. But yeah, Fatso was more popular than that. But the IOC banned him. Mm. They were like, he is not allowed to appear. I also like how they were like, it's a he. They are like, he is not allowed to appear with athletes anymore. (laughs) And then Roy and HG famously on The Dream are like, the IOC can get stuffed, (laughs) which is pretty wild because they were being broadcast on Channel 7, who were the official broadcaster Mm. of the games and had a deal, like an exclusivity deal with the IOC. So like Channel 7 back then were a bit more fast and loose. Mm, Absolutely. (laughs) Yep. There is now uh, a, they, a statue of Fatso. Do you know that? No. At the at Olympic Park. I assume it's still there. Oh. They, they erected a statue. Amazing. Mm. See, there's no boxing kangaroo statue. No. Amazing. They made up their own names for the gymnastic moves. Mm. Some included the Dutch wink, bat of the sav, cloud work. <laughs> I really like it. Many more. Mm. Yeah, they also did a diving comp, so they somehow like clearly got you know Channel Seven staff, like some people, you know, some production staff and producers or whatever, and they staged a diving competition of all the various mascots, including (laughs) Fatso. As in, they just yeeted them off the top of the Olympic diving. People dressed as them, or just toys? No, no, the actual toys. And they clearly just got in with the people running the pool mm. and did it and people watched it and cheered <laughs> and then they like they must have done it within, you know, like a 30-minute window. Mm. It's like, okay, nothing important is happening in this window. Go, go, go. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Fat so one, mm. naturally. Uh, famously, okay, Jess, mm. Jane, is it Saville? Saville? Saville. I don't know. Jane Saville. Well, let's just go with mm. that. Famously, Jane Saville was booted from the walking race, the 20K 
walking race. Mm. She's the one with it's that awful footage where she's like walking along and this one like old mate, you know, some guy probably called Graham or something, like steps out onto the thing with a tiny red paddle and is like disqualified and she just breaks. Yeah. Down. She had had two warnings because the, the rule is that the supporting leg can't be raised. Oh, yeah, competitive walking is, is so bizarre. It's wild. Yeah, but she whew, she was booted and people were really angry. But she did go on to win, win bronze at the 2004 Athens Games. Mm. But, yeah, she was devastated. And I remember that. Yeah, it's pretty. Again, so all of these moments you can find so easily on the internet mm. and some of them are genuinely excellent television. Oh, yeah. Like the dramatic tension, mm. oof, chef's kiss, better than anything I'll ever be paid to write. <laughs> uh, that's not true. Please support <laughs> the arts. Uh, <laughs> and last but not least, Kathy Freeman. Mm. So she had the 400-meter event coming up. She had a few other races as well, but, like, that was the big one. And essentially over a period of, you know, Almost like three years leading up to the Olympics, the pressure just built and built and built because she was at other national races Mm. where she was winning or almost winning and she was, you know, just this formidable athlete that internationally had this reputation and she was up against like one or two other amazing female athletes that also had excellent, you know, just – yeah, international reputations. So basically the pressure was on and it was the biggest event not only of this Olympics but of any sport in Olympic Games history. The stadium was attended by 112,524 people. It's a, That's like so many people. Yeah. I actually didn't even realise it could fit that many people. Mm. Like that's not in its current configuration, but as it was built for no. the games, yeah, 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 yeah. So that's huge, and then obviously, you know, millions of people on TV watched it. Um, it also it was one of those like f- fateful things where it all lined up because the, as I mentioned earlier, the women's volleyball had won the ninety ninth medal prior to this. And so not only was all this pressure on, but if she won, she was going to win Australia's 100th medal Mm. for the Games. So everything just like lines up. If you have not watched this race recently, please pause and spend five minutes watching it now. Mm, Because, I mean... Hectic. Yeah, and it's been it's been a rough week for a lot of us and I won't lie to you, I've watched it and it made me very emotional. (laughs) I cried, you know. You know, it's, yeah. Not afraid to admit mm. it. Moved. Yep, like a baby. Moved to tears. <laughs> um, it's also just a brilliant race. Mm. Like, I mean, spoiler alert, uh, but she she does really kind of have to make some really tight turns and push really hard towards the end and then does it and she gets the gold and it's amazing and she just kind of – not like collapses but just kind of folds down to the ground Mm. and just holds her face and the commentators stop like they both kind of stop because everyone's just like what do we say and um the female commentator whose name has escaped me she just goes what a relief (laughs) and it was just like there's just like nothing else you could say because of all of the build-up to this mm. thing and the whole country was watching and the whole world was watching. Mm. She's lit Huge. the torch. She's in her full unitard. She's lit the torch. She In this, she becomes the first um, Aboriginal person to win a gold medal individually, mm. so the second after Nova Paris at all, um, which is pretty amazing. And she carries both the Australian and Aboriginal flags which technically wasn't allowed because um, flags that aren't approved by the IOC are not allowed. Yeah, because it's like it. no non-official flags, although it is an official flag in Australia. It wasn't officially recognised yes. by the Olympic Committee. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, and she she also crosses the boundary to go and hug her family and stuff like that mm. as well. Like it's just such an excellent 
moment yeah um in sporting history but also just history as well um if you have not watched freeman which was the documentary on the abc made with bangara it's it's amazing it's one of the best documentaries i've watched in the last i actually haven't watched it yet watch it it's so good i'm gonna rewatch it if i had time in this research i would have rewatched it Mm. like yeah really 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 well made so the final medal tally at the end, so this is the gold medal tally. The United States of America is first, Russian Federation second, People's Republic of China third, and Australia fourth. And Australia is third in the total medal tally. Woo! Yo! The games in total has a record of 928 medals awarded mm. overall in 300 events. So the person to win the most medals uh, gold-wise was American sprinter Marion Jones, who won three gold and two bronze, and then Australian swimmer Ian Thorpe, who got three gold and a silver. Sweet baby Thorpey. 17. That's wild. I just got the most gold medals at the Olympics, and I'm 17. Mm. And I'm a nerd. Yeah. Bless. (laughs) (sighs) Um. And overall, the Australian Olympic swimmers win 18 medals, which is pretty big. Mm. So swimming swimming always beefs up our Yeah, total. <laughs> it does. <laughs> so the closing ceremony happens and the games are officially handed over to Athens, which is also the next city to host the Olympic Games. So two Greek flags were raised. Uh, they always raise one to honour the birthplace of the Olympics and then they raised the other to say it's going there next, which is cool. Mm. And also at the closing ceremony, the president of the IOC famously says, I am proud and happy to proclaim that you have delivered the best Olympic Games ever. Yeah. And everyone's like, yeah. Juan Antonio Samaranch. That was his tradition. He said that for the last three Olympics. Yes, and then he he did. And then... Yeah, and then the guy after him was like, I won't be saying that anymore. I'll be saying things along the lines of, like, good work. Mm. (laughs) Yes, but people always famously quote him being like, it was the best one. And then you're like, but he said it several times. Yeah, it was the good thing that he said. (laughs) Yeah, which is cute. Mm. But the the whole premise was that it would be like, this is the best one because it's our most recent one Mm. and we're always working towards the best one, which is actually really nice. Mm. Yeah. Because he said it at Atlanta too, which famously was... Not the best one. Not the best one. Sydney, maybe Uh, the best one. Yeah. Yeah, Mm. we're biased, but, you know, pretty good. Yeah. Um, Yeah, but lots of people spoke about it highly. So James Mossop of the Electronic Telegraph called the Games such a success that any city considering bidding for future Olympics must be wondering how it can reach the standards set by Sydney, Jack Todd in the Montreal Gazette suggested the IOC should quit while it's ahead, admit there can never be a better Olympic Games and be done with it, as Sydney was both exceptional and the best. And Bill Bryson from the Times says that the Games was one of the most successful events on the world stage ever. Wow. Yeah, so internationally, like, yes, obviously we're super biased, but even internationally other countries, including America, were like, this was genuinely mm. very, very well managed and very impressive. Well, and because like the Olympic Games, it always, I mean, it has benefits, but it also always comes at an economic cost. Like, and also often people are. Which is the next section here. People are displaced. How did you know? Yeah. Mm. Yep. So Sydney set out to, I mean, th- that was a huge part of the appeal and their bid was that they were rejuvenating land that was not well looked after Mm. rather than knocking down lots and lots and lots of housing. There may have still been a little bit of that, um, and I imagine there probably would have been, and I'd also like to know what the processes were with consulting with traditional custodians and stuff like that. So I don't know. I can't speak to those things. But compared to other Olympics where they have, yeah, literally like moved Mm. people on and caused a refugee problem. And then those Um, stadiums that they've been kicked out for are like abandoned. That hasn't happened. Yeah, like Athens famously, you know, like so many of those venues 
have just become completely derelict. Mm. And there were some venues that did not survive after Sydney, but it was the really, really oddly specific ones, like the the rapid rowing and mm. um, the equestrian, some of the equestrian venues. Well, one of and the stuff wild like water, that. like the wild water rapid thing in like in Penrith, I think that there is still one that's still used, but like not all of them. You know, you only yes. need so yes. many. No, exactly. Like you, don't, you really don't. Because there used to be rules around the Olympics used to dictate that you had to build specific venues for specific events mm. and specific sports, sorry. So sports couldn't share venues except for like a couple of sports that were allowed to. Um, and that rule no longer exists mm. because of this recent legacy of, you know, waste yeah. and bankruptcy and stuff like that, which is why the the Brisbane proposal, which still has some things that need to be addressed, is very, very different mm. to the proposals of the past. But anyway. Yeah. Oh, and in, so, with Sydney, some of the things that were, like, dismantled, like, were then used, like, the because my high school in Queensland said, so like, a, like, performance centre, like, the basketball court that was, like, new and fancy that we got a couple years after was, like, f- the floor was from the Olympics. Yeah. Like they just palm yeah, lots yeah. of bits off to schools. Yeah. The same happened with Expo 88. Like the shade sales at Griffith University are from Expo mm. 88. <laughs> like yeah. Just stuff like that. Yeah. So you, there are ways where you can make it more sustainable, which is good. In saying that though, mm. so in 1993, um, in the lead up to the Games, KPMG, which is the international financial firm mm. um, that was used to do this consultation estimated there would be more than $7 billion benefit to the national economy. But then in 1998, the University of Tasmania and New South Wales Treasury economists suggested there would only be a 0.11% effect on GDP over the 12-year Olympic phase. So, you know, it's not surprising that a banking firm that helps get the bid is like, well, Ooh, and then the actual government and universities are like, oh, maybe. <laughs> yeah, and well, because it's things like, you know, gov- if government spending is going into all these sports things, then it's less of it's going into like roads and hospitals and other infrastructure. Yes, which is where the newer Olympic models come in, and we'll get to that as well, mm. about how there's an infrastructure model that they are transitioning into, which still has its problems, but is much better. So the Sydney Games cost approximately 6.6 billion Australian dollars. I did the maths, I did the time conversion and that equated to about 3.9 billion US dollars, mm-hmm. which compared to 4.6 billion for Rio, 40 to 44 billion for Beijing. Goodness. And 51 billion for Sochi, which was the most expensive ever. <laughs> is a budget games. Yeah. Which is wild Mm. because it didn't look budget and $3.9 billion is a lot Mm. of money. So the legacy of the games is debatable and also really hard to measure. Like there aren't really quantitative Mm. values we can put in place. Uh, It didn't really generate a sustained increase in sport in the way that they thought it might mm. do. Um, some argue that it's because Australia is also, like it already was really sport heavy. Mm. So it's kind of like how much further can you go yeah. without being a very, very rich person and indulging, like no, sorry, not indulging, mm. investing in niche sport, those kind of elite niche sports. Mm. Yeah. So the main Olympic site did create usable space and parklands, which is great. And those sites are used for, Um, modern sports events now you know the NRL in particular Mm. as well as like the aquatic center is still there and there's lots of you know exhibitions and competitions that are held there I went there once with students of mine for a national dance competition (laughs) and uh, that was a time because you really do clock how empty it is Mm. Like when these events are not on day to day, the suburb really is oh, yeah. a ghost town like, and is kind of searching for its identity mm. outside of being a relic to the past. Yeah. yeah. There's an article that the ABC wrote, uh, that the ABC published, that I think sums it up perfectly. So I'm just going to quote 
them. The physical remnant of Sydney 2000 is the vast and almost cruelly functional Sydney Olympic Park. This week, so at the time of this publication, Ian Thorpe and a group of still manically cheery volunteers clad in their perfectly preserved uniforms (laughs) gathered to reignite the cauldron outside the Olympic Stadium, a ceremony that only emphasised the precinct's reputation as the bunnings of Australian sport. (laughs) It is not like the Olympic precinct has fallen into complete disrepair like some of the flimsy pop-up stadiums used at Athens 2004. It is just... That, as a permanent reminder of a great experience, the area is more of a fridge magnet than monument. (laughs) I was like, yeah, it kind of is. It's beautifully said. But also, like, it's a big stadium. Like, when you, if there's not a gig on, there's not a sport on, why would you go there? But there are, you know. I think that's the argument. Mm. It's like they need to kind of make it less of a hotels and empty pavement space yeah, during the week. Some other know, how can they there. get people to live there? Mm. Yeah. Um, in saying that, though, the event, so not so much physically the site, but the event in itself set a standard for quite a few Australia-hosted sports events that followed after that. The 2003 Rugby World Cup, 2018 Commonwealth Games in Brisbane, as well as the 2032 Games that are coming up. 2015 AFC, 2015 Cricket World Cup, like there's all of these sporting events that the Olympics kind of gave us enough rep and credit and also a model to use. So there has been a legacy in that way. Mm. Um, The other thing which you mentioned earlier is that there are a few um, articles and studies that have been done and books that have been written, one being called The Benchmark Games, about how the Paralympic Games got more attention than it had Mm. in the past and they also opened up and the Olympics have continued to do this and there's clearly room for improvement but they started to open up the categories of what having a disability means for people Mm. and that visibility of the Paralympic Games on the major broadcaster was higher than it ever had been before and yeah some people argue that it set a new benchmark for other games to meet which is cool. Mm. Uh, So John Coates is still there, who is the Australian Olympic Committee leader, Mm. the head of the Australian Olympic Committee. Uh, He made news last week, famously, (laughs) for some good and bad things. Um, But, yeah, he's still there Mm. kicking on, which is wild. I imagine that might have been part of the reason why Brisbane got through because Sydney Games has such a – positive reputation Mm. with the IOC but you know maybe it's time for new blood just (laughs) saying it's been the same straight white man for a long time yeah um and and we'll talk about this a bit more I assume Jess when we talk about the opening ceremony Mm. but there's definitely arguments on both sides about what the games did for multiculturalism broadly Mm. and also um, Indigenous representation both nationally and internationally. Like some people, you know, I can't speak about it personally, but some people are on the record saying that was this amazing event to see their culture represented on such a large positive Mm. international scale. Um, Other people talk about how, you know, as far as, actual policy change and you know in the era of black lives matter can can people actually claim that sydney 2000 had this you know transformative impact on first nations lives and futures Mm. it's kind of hard to measure it is hard to measure um but you know that's something that yeah it's 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 yeah it's it's just an interesting thing to ponder on i guess 21 years later how how far we've come and how far we haven't come Mm. after an event that did seem on the surface level to be so uniting, at least in its presentation to the world. Yeah, well, and that's That's all I will say. It's the the thing where they talk like that Olympics is not meant to be political, and yet it is. Um, Absolutely. And like Eurovision. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And there was was an article, I think it was in the conversation, um, was just like about, you know, like soft power 
at the Olympics mm. and that's where like the opening ceremony comes in because it's like where you're, you're deciding what you want to present to the world. Exactly. And then whether that actually translates beyond that like meaningful moment yes. but whether it becomes more than that. And well-meaning moments. Yes. And that it's, well is like yeah. led by community as well. Like it's, yeah, I'll talk more about the ceremony but yes. yeah, it's a whole, it's very interesting. Yeah. So that leaves us looking forward to 2032 Brisbane. Mm, they've got more than seven years to sort it out. So that's good. Yeah. Do not count 11 years into the future and do the maths on how old you will be because that's scary. Mm. Yep. I was talking, so I was talking to our friend Curly Jess while we were mm-hmm. at the gym the other day, and he lives in the area where the games will predominantly be. And he, and it was this is the day it was announced. And he was like, "Man, like you know, on one hand, like I'm really excited that the games are coming, and on the other hand, ah, oh, maybe I have to go and like rent an Airbnb, or maybe I'll go and stay at Sarah's house, which is his twin sister. I'll go and stay with Sarah, and like, and I was like, Curly." You've got 11 years to plan. Yeah. It's okay. <laughs> and my point is, is that the amount of conversations I've had with local Brisbaneites where they're like, man, you know, like what, what I'll, I'll have to think about getting time off or I'll have to blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, guys, you've got 11 years. Mm. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> You'll be able to make that. Yeah. Everyone's like, oh, it's next year. <laughs> Classic Brisbane mm. bless. Um, But one of the big things moving forward that I hope for these games, because it is a controversial thing being a host city, one, this is my wish list, Mm. is that it needs to be, there needs to be more than one Indigenous person on the panel. Yeah, that would be good. (laughs) Like maybe even Indigenous and like just diverse in every single way Mm. led group of people. (laughs) Two, whoever directs the opening ceremony should probably also be a first nations person Mm -hmm. we can talk about that tomorrow sorry in our next week (laughs) if you're listening weekly also if they commit to the infrastructure rather than temporary design plan which is you know yes we are already building a train line we were already building up the gabba we're already doing those things and they make sure that they maintain affordable housing within these areas, it could be a new way to do the games, Mm. which is exciting. Like it's a new model. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we also have the Sydney Olympics to thank for just like a good party that we get to all reflect on. Oh, yeah. 21 years ago. Like the aesthetic is good. There's a lot. Um, And, I mean, speaking of the party element of it, that will be the next episode, opening ceremony, deep dive. So tune in. It is a multi-sensory time. Mm. (laughs) It is a trio of dips. It is a three-course meal. It is a degustation of delights. It is a real snapshot of a time to – yes very specific era Mm. my references Mm -hmm. are (laughs) the sydney 2000 rewind on channel 7 the los angeles times olympics.com encyclopedia britannica the conversation the independent uk benchmark games the national film archive australia geographic the abc the museum of applied arts and sciences and the associated press that is a long list thank you all for your research brother Okay, so you're six, you're in Sydney, uh-huh. you're competing or yeah. did you go to the Games? I I actually directed the opening ceremony. No, I was visiting my family. So my oh, my auntie Robin and Uncle Anthony, who you have met, oh, who now live in France. Yeah. Yep. Hey, guys, if you're listening. Uh, actually, there's a hilarious story about Uncle Ant as well during the Olympics. But I stayed with them. And we watched a lot of the events. My sister actually went to the volleyball. Mm-hmm. Um, shout out if you're listening, Rebecca. Uh, and she brought me back a tiny 
Fully Wool with the logo on it, which I cherished for years. And then also during that trip, um, Uncle Ant and I would secretly get up at 2, 3 a.m. to watch Scooby-Doo and eat ice cream. Cute. So that was good. <laughs> but then we also went and visited my grandma and grandpa in Mossvale and – we watched Kathy Freeman's race at their house and I still remember it. I remember exactly where their TV is. I remember watching it. I remember even at six years old realizing it was a really, really big deal. I probably didn't quite know some of the cultural significance, mm. but I knew it was a big deal. And also when she came out in her amazing suit, my grandpa was like, oh, she's in her pajamas. <laughs> and I still remember that. But my uncle aunt, so they were in Sydney proper and <laughs> the French, one of the French teams for one of the sports trained. So they were like obviously staying near their house and they trained nearby and they would run past their house. And this was recently after there was some kind of situation with France and wastewater and nuclear waste in Australia like there was some mm. kind of international tension with that and whenever they ran past Anthony would spray them <laughs> with his hose <laughs> and go this is for what you did to our water now you're dealing with my water and like anyway wow yeah so like <laughs> um it's not really in the spirit of the games is it uncle no, but, you know, he would have done it in his, like, this is funny. Mm. Like, I think this is funny. And it's like, no, you are attacking an international yeah. athlete <laughs> and someone could report you. <laughs> oh, dear. He wasn't taken away by a series of um, volunteers. <laughs> <laughs> they just appear. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So that was my Olympics. Mm. Cool. I'm aiming to compete at the Brisbane. What will, What sport? Can I say tech decks? Sure. Will, you, they get, <laughs> will they be sport by There's normally new sports that you can introduce. Yeah. They've just introduced skateboarding. I'd like mm. to introduce miniature skateboarding. Okay. Otherwise known as tech decks. And I think I would have a good chance. Great. We'll begin training. What would yours be? <laughs> <laughs> is it maybe there's like. Is it like tennis where you can do it solo or you can do it in doubles? Like and it's just tech deck? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, we can be a doubles, doubles tech, tech deck team. Yeah. Great. Sick. <laughs> so you're there, 2032. All right. Okay. Yeah, I'll stretch my fingers now. 